You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. I just read a definition to you from Merriam-Webster. The definition is, enough to meet the needs of a situation or a proposed end. That is the definition of the word sufficient. Everyone say sufficient. Enough to meet the needs of a situation or a proposed end. If I had to sum up that definition in one word, I would sum it up with the word enough. Enough. This morning I want to talk to you about the sufficiency of Christ. The fact that Jesus is enough. I want you to see this with me in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We finished um, last week a study in the book of Daniel. And after Labor Day, we're going to begin a study on the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. I'm excited about that. But this Sunday and the next, we're going to talk about the sufficiency of Christ. We'll begin in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. If you're physically able, I want to ask you this morning to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'll be honest with you, I turned in my sermon notes, and you'll notice there that it has six points. Everybody see that? Well, you know, in uh, football these days, if the referee makes a call and it's disputed, uh, there's instant replay now, correct? And the referee will look at the instant replay, walk back out on the field and say, upon further review, and change the call. Well, I looked at my notes this weekend, and upon further review, I came to the conclusion I'll never finish six points in one sermon. So we're just going to do three, and we're going to do three next week, all right? So uh, it's going to be part one and part two, because there's so much good stuff here, so many things I want to talk to you about. Colossians uh, chapter 2, verse 6. I don't lose my composure very often. I, I, I really don't. But when I do, it's bad. And I felt myself in that last song, losing my composure. I thought, Lord, help me. Help me. What a powerful message. And aren't you grateful for the blood of Jesus? Amen. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which... You were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, 
having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we pause in this moment to recognize our need for you. We need you, Lord, to to be transformed by your word. We need you to work in our midst by the power of the Spirit, that our eyes would be opened, that our hearts would be inclined to respond, that we would, Lord, leave today different than when we walked in. We need you to do that. So, Father in heaven, would you meet with us today with life-transforming power. Open our hearts. Change us. Help us, Lord, to understand and find our sufficiency in Christ. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The book of Colossians is in reality a letter from Paul to a group of Christians in the first century city of Colossae and also surrounding areas. It's interesting as you look at the internal evidence of the book that that some teaching had bubbled up in Colossae that prescribed ways of living the Christian life that really had nothing to do with Jesus. Now let me say that again. Some teaching had bubbled up in the church in Colossae that prescribed ways of living the Christian life that really had nothing to do with Jesus. Did you know that's possible? That some people try to live the Christian life in ways other than total dependency on Christ. In chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, which I don't have time to deal with fully this morning, Paul describes some of these teachings. He mentions sensationalism, worship of angels and spectacular supernatural visions, and people were being caught up in this aspect of the faith. And instead of A a laser-like focus on Jesus. The focus was on experience. And they had lost their mooring. There was also a teaching called asceticism that that had bubbled up in the church in Colossae, which is basically men prescribing rules for others and saying, if you keep these rules, then you're really holy. It was a strict man-made religion. And all these rules were being prescribed, extra-biblical rules, were being prescribed in and for the church, and they really had nothing to do with Jesus. In fact, the key's found in verse 19. Look what it says there in verse 19. You're dealing with sensationalism, aestheticism, and look at verse 19. And not holding fast to the head. You're trying to practice your faith, You're trying to live out the Christian life without holding on to Jesus. 
And that's never going to end well. And so Paul's writing to the church in Colossae to deal with these these false teachings. And he's emphasizing here in this letter the sufficiency of Christ. So let me give you my thesis on the very front end of the sermon. And it's there in your notes. Here it is. In Christ, you have all you need. Can I get an amen on that? In Christ, you have all you need. Or let me say it like this. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. And let me go farther by saying, no one else and nothing else is enough other than Christ. So what I want to do over these next two weeks is I want to talk about six areas in which Jesus is sufficient for your faith. We're going to do three this week and three the next so that you and I can be reminded that Christ is all we need. Christ is enough. So keeping that in mind, look with me at the first area of the sufficiency of Christ. He, Jesus, is sufficient for your eternity. He's sufficient for your eternity. Back in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, notice what the Bible says. In Him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He's saying, when you met Christ... Christ performed spiritual heart surgery. He cut away the power of the old sin nature. He he began to transform you from the inside out. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, just like Jesus died, the baptism pictures your death to to your old life, your old way of living, your old self. He says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, you're brand new now is what he's saying, who raised him from the dead. Just like Jesus died, you died. Your old sin nature died. It no longer has dominion over you. And just like Jesus was raised, you've been raised. You've been given brand new life. You're a brand new person. Look what it says next. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you were were lost in your sin, you were unchanged, God made alive together with him. Now look at this next phrase. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. He's speaking here of the forgiveness of, that we find in Christ. But look at the next phrase. He uses a powerful picture to drive the point of forgiveness home. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. In the first century, if you were found guilty of a crime, 
They would take you to your jail cell, and they would put you in the cell, and then they would nail over the top of the cell a, 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 a piece of paper that had a record of your transgression that listed the crimes that you had committed. So if you were walking through a prison in that day and time, you could simply look at the top of the jail cell and see what the person in the prison cell was guilty of. That was a commonplace occurrence in the first century. But notice how Paul brings this into a a relevant way into our lives. He says, Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us. In other words, we've all got a list of transgressions. The Bible says, there are none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it says over in Revelation, when the unsaved are judged at the great white throne of judgment, they will be judged according to the books. In other words, there is a listing in the mind and heart of an all-knowing God of all of the areas in which we have blown it. You say, well, that's not a big deal. Well, can I ask you a question? Would you want a visual representation of that list played on the video screen this morning for everyone to see? If a video of our life, our entire life, was played on the screen this morning, who in this room would not hang their head in shame? And say, I have blown it. There have been times in my life I've disrespected God and disregarded God and rebelled against God and gone my own direction. Who in this room would not hang their head in shame? We all have a certificate of debt. We all have a listing of where we have fallen short. And look what Paul says about that list of sins. For those that know Christ, he says... He canceled, verse 14, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he do it? Look at the next phrase. This, that list of sin, that list of wrongdoing, that record of our lives, this he set aside, watch this, nailing it to the cross. So here's what that means. That Jesus took all of our sin and all of our guilt, and all of our shame, and instead of nailing it over our head so people could walk by and see all the things we're guilty of, Jesus took it and nailed it to his cross. He came to this earth to go to the cross and take on all of our sin, and all of our guilt, and all of our shame, and on the cross, he paid the penalty that our sin deserves. And when we embrace Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior by faith, our certificate of debt is canceled because Jesus paid the price. Jesus took the punishment. Our sins have been nailed to the cross. That means they are forgiven Before we were saved, there was impurity, there was sin 
that separated us from a holy God. But when you embrace Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, His blood, we sang about earlier, His blood washes away that sin. There's no longer impurity separating you from God. Now you can be reconciled to God and have a personal relationship with Him. Now in Christ, He's your Father and your friend. That means... That in this life, you have a relationship with God. And when you die, that relationship with God continues forever and ever and ever and ever. Jesus has done everything necessary to secure for you eternal life in heaven. If you look in your notes... Jesus paid your sin debt in full so you can experience an eternal relationship with God. And I believe this is exactly what was on the heart and mind of Christ when he hung up on the cross. Because the Bible records seven sayings that Jesus made from the cross. I think I'm going to preach on those next year leading up to Easter. But one of the sayings was this. Jesus cried out to die." Translated, it is finished. Now remember that certificate of debt that they would nail over a prisoner's door in the first century? When that person had served their time, when they had paid their debt to society, they would, they would come and release them from prison and take that certificate of debt back to the judge. And they would say, judge, this person has served their time And the judge would write on that certificate of debt one word. You know what the word was? To telesty. Paid in full. Finished. So when Jesus Christ cried out on the cross, it is finished. Here's what he was saying. Your debt, my debt, your sin, my sin, paid in full by Christ. He is sufficient for your eternity and nothing else and no one else is no one else can provide for you eternal life in heaven in a relationship with God but Jesus he's sufficient for your eternity number two we may have to do three part sermon on this number two He's sufficient for your journey. He's sufficient for your journey. Now back up to verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2. He kind of begins this teaching section with these verses, which are so important and profound. Therefore, in light of Paul's desire to influence them, therefore, he says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, now that you're a Christian, You've received him as your personal Lord and Savior. Look what he says next. So walk in him. Rooted. means your roots are going down deeper and deeper and deeper. Built up in him. Established in the faith just as you were taught. Abounding in thanksgiving. The Bible never says that Jesus came so that we could have converts. Now, to be certain, when a person is unsaved and they place their faith in Christ, they are saved, they are converted, they are born again. 
But, but Jesus doesn't use the word converts. He uses the word disciples. He wants people to experience salvation, reconciliation with God, and then he wants them to follow him every day of their life. He wants their allegiance. He wants their surrender. He wants their trust. If you look there in your notes, Jesus saves you to change you. He saves you to change you. Jesus didn't just come so you could go to heaven when you die. He did come so you could go to heaven. Praise the Lord for that. But Jesus came to change you in the here and now. You see, Jesus died for you and for me while we were yet sinners. He loves us just as we are. But make no mistake about it, Jesus loves us too much to leave us like we are. He wants to save you forgive you of your sins, and then he wants to lead you on a journey of transformation whereby he transforms you into the image of Christ. The Bible calls that sanctification, that process whereby the Lord makes you more and more and more like Jesus. He's sufficient for your journey. Listen to me. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I want you to know that Jesus loves you. We've all got a certificate of debt. You've got a certificate of debt. I've got a certificate of debt. We've all done things wrong. And I don't know what's on your list. But whatever it is, I want you to know Jesus loves you. He died for those sins on the cross. But let me tell you this. If you come to Christ today... If you place your faith in him and receive him as your personal Lord and Savior, receiving the free gift of eternal life, just know that he's going to change some stuff in your life. He loves you too much to just leave you alone. That's why it says over in Romans 10, 9, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. You come to this relationship with Christ knowing that he's the master, he's, he's Lord, and, and he's going to do some things in you. He's going to change you. He's going to take you on a journey of transformation. I want you to know he's sufficient for that journey. Paul says it there in, in verse, verse uh, 6. As you received him, so walk in him. He's sufficient for your salvation He's sufficient for your sanctification. He'll give you what you need if you just walk with him. Stay connected to him. Keep your eyes upon him. Talk to him. Focus on him. He will change you. This past week, really, yeah, this past week, a couple weeks, Claire and I, had our hearts have just been soaring with gratitude at a good friend of ours who just planted a church. He and his wife just planted a church. And this, this friend of mine at one time served as my student pastor. And he and his wife felt called to the mission field. They went to South Asia to the mission field. One of their sons had some... Um, some health difficulties on the mission field, so they had to come back home. When they came back home, he came back on staff with me doing um, discipleship. 
And as of this summer, he and his wife, with a core group of believers, went out and started a brand new church. They had 138 people on their first Sunday. It was awesome. In a fast-growing area, they were able to meet in a school, and, and uh, God's just blessed. They're seeing people saved, and, and we see that, and our hearts are just soaring. But let me tell you about this, this church planter, missionary, youth pastor, discipleship pastor, now a lead pastor. He, uh, he got in some trouble when he was a teenager into his young adult years. Dealt with his lifestyle, involved in drugs and alcohol, and then he got involved in selling drugs. He was arrested. He was in jail for months. Probably would have been longer if his family hadn't known somebody that knew somebody. He got out of jail, went right back to what he was doing, headed for for major legal trouble. One night, one of his running buddies came and talked to him. And he said, something's happened to me I need to tell you about. He said, I met Jesus. And this buddy of his said, he's better than any high you've ever had. (laughs) This guy was a brand new believer. That's all he knew to say. Better than any high you've ever had. And he challenged him to give his life to Christ. And then his friend left. He was alone in his little apartment. And the Holy Spirit began to work, applying the gospel to his heart and his life. And he got on his knees there in his apartment by himself and asked Jesus to save him. Gloriously saved. And then God began to just transform him. He was got a job working with the county, doing some maintenance stuff. Before you knew it, he was involved in everything the church had going on. God brought a Christian lady into his life. He got married, felt a call of God on his life. Before you knew it, he was serving on a church staff. Missionary, now he's a church planter. And, and, I, and the reason I've just been so excited this week is seeing that church come to fruition is because my friend is a picture of how Jesus can radically change a life. He does it all that he's done in your life, he's done it in my life, he did it in my friend's life. He is sufficient. For your journey. In fact, as this choir was singing this last song, This Blood, I was thinking about my friend Trey. You'll probably hear him preach here one day. I'll bring him down. I was thinking about my friend Trey, and I was just thinking about God's goodness in his life. How he transformed him, and now he's, a, he's preaching the gospel. Oh, the power of the blood of Jesus. And let me say this before I move on. I, I don't want you to get the wrong, the wrong idea this morning. Let me tell you what Christianity is about. 
when it comes to biblical Christianity, you don't clean up your life and then come to Jesus because you'll never clean up your own life. You come to Jesus and then you let him clean up your life. Amen? That's how it works. He's sufficient for your journey. Number three, and last one this morning. He's sufficient for your satisfaction. He's sufficient for your satisfaction. It's implied in Colossians. You don't need to go the way of of sensationalism or asceticism. Jesus is the key to the Christian life. He's the key to your eternity. He's the key to your journey. Keep your eyes on him. And he's the key to satisfaction in your life. In fact, turn to Philippians. Right before the book of Colossians. Philippians chapter 4. I want to show you one of the most misinterpreted verses in the Bible. Colossians, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 4. Let's just read the verse four, then uh, verse first, then I'll back up and show you the context. But look in Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Isn't that a great verse? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, growing up, I would hear that verse divorced from its context, usually in relation to athletics. And I'd have like a, a poster of some, you know, NBA star who is a Christian, and it would say on the, the poster, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I look at that and I say, I want to play in the NBA. I got some skills. I can, you know, I, I think I can play some basketball one day in the NBA. And, uh, but look at me. Not God's plan for my life. So Philippians 4.13 doesn't mean if you try hard enough and dream big enough that God will get you in the NBA. God doesn't want me in the NBA, obviously. What does it mean? Well, back up to the context. Look what it says there in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. He's talking to the church in Philippi. You've been helping me out, ministering to my needs. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. Paul's saying, I'm not complaining about my situation. He wrote Philippians from jail. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be what? What's the word there? Content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Here's what Paul is saying in this verse, and it's so much bigger than God will get you to the NBA. (laughs) Much more important than that. What he's saying is this. Life is full of mountains and valleys. Can I get an amen? Sometimes you're on the mountaintop. You're experiencing the blessing of God. Things are good. You're grateful. Wow. Look at my blessed life. And sometimes you find yourself in the valley. Things are tough. Things are dark. Things are uncertain. Fear, anxiety, trial you want it just to be over with sometimes you're on the mountain sometimes you are in the valley and Paul's saying because of Christ 
because of his strength that he gives me, I've learned that whether I'm on the mountaintop or the valley, I can find my contentment in him. That's what Philippians 4.13 means. It means Jesus gives you strength to be content. Now, here's where we miss it oftentimes. We think we need other things to be content, right? If we achieve or if we acquire, then we'll be content. If we get just the right job or have just the right vehicle or just the right home or the right levels of money in my 401k or if my kids achieve this, or then I've, achieved, then I've found it. I've found life. But these verses remind us, you'll never find true, lasting, abiding contentment in the things of this world. They just pass away. They just pass away. You only find real contentment in your relationship with Jesus. It's true. It's only in Christ in moments of plenty, you're grateful while understanding that things don't ultimately satisfy. In moments of scarcity, you know that you are rich because you have a relationship with Jesus that gives you abundant life. If you have everything but you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. And if you have nothing but you have Jesus, you have everything. Jesus is enough for your satisfaction he'll meet the deepest needs of your soul stop pursuing stuff it's not going to deliver if stuff satisfied then why do we see multi-billionaires commit suicide they got plenty of money they don't have to worry about paying the light bill It's because stuff doesn't meet the deepest needs of your soul. Only an abiding, daily, living, breathing walk with Jesus satisfies your soul. And oh, how he satisfies. Oh, how he fills you up. That's what Colossians says, Colossians 2. He fills you. He fills you to overflowing. So I hope this sermon and as we finish this sermon next week, you'll be reminded of the sufficiency of Christ. He is enough. He's enough for your eternity. He's enough for your journey. He's enough for real, lasting satisfaction and contentment in this life. I have a pastor friend in Uganda, Pastor George, and... Um, I went on a short-term trip there years ago. 
and had the privilege of teaching some pastors in that area. There's a church planting movement happening in southern Uganda, and I was I was I was speaking to some some church planters and doing some training, and it was wonderful. And I got to know Pastor George, who was the leader of this this movement. Um, and we got there, and I met Pastor George that first night. It was it was getting dark, and we began to walk up to his house. Pastor George took my hand and held my hand when we walked into the house. That was new. But I was, he just held his hand. All right, that's how they do it over there. We walked up to his house and um, walked in his house. I met his wife, Robina, his kids. And uh, Robina was cooking dinner for us. And it was, uh, she was cooking on the floor, a little fire on the floor. Very, very humble home. She's cooking dinner for us, and we, uh, we ate dinner there together and just had fellowship. And we went to different churches in the area. And, you know, I look around this marvelous sanctuary and our building. Even, the, even when the AC's out, we get to meet in another great building on the other side of our campus. And, and uh, just around people that just didn't have the stuff that I was a com- uh, company uh, uh, familiar with. In the States. They just didn't have all the stuff. But I'm telling you. These folks exemplified a satisfied soul. They loved Jesus. To see them worship. To see them worship. They'd be worshiping on dirt floors. And right before the sermon was preached, I got to preach in one of those churches. Right before the sermon was preached, they would, boy, they'd let it loose. And they'd start kicking and dancing and kicking. And, and, and by the time I got to preach, there'd be, there'd be dust in the air. I mean, you could barely see. It was so hazy because they were so excited about hearing the word. And they had nothing. In fact, Pastor George was involved in a a seminary program, and he got to come to the States to finish up that program and, and uh, got to graduate at the seminary here in the States. And while he was stateside, we flew him into my church, my former church, and Pastor George spent a couple of weeks with us at our church. He preached for me, and uh, I, honestly, I was a little worried. Here's why I was worried. Here comes Pastor George, and he really has not much of anything in terms of buildings or stuff. He's going to come to our church. He's going to see the beautiful facility. He's going to see our big shiny computers on our desk. And I was just worried he's going to think, well, this is Christianity. That you have all the stuff. And I want you to know that Pastor George could not have been more unaffected by it. He just didn't care. He was ready to get back and minister to his people. And plant churches and preach the gospel. You know why our stuff didn't mean anything to him? Because he was filled to overflowing with Jesus. And Jesus is enough. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.